it's pretty awesome to see, um, at least, you know, to see our kids go off and then have conversations with them throughout the week and, and have them bring up things that they're learning. Things and I, I don't know if I've ever taught you that. I don't know if we've ever read that story in the Bible. Oh, yeah, I heard it in church. Um, it's awesome. It's awesome to see, uh, see our kids learning like that. So um, I'm going to just kind of, I think I'll just slide that out of the way. So we are, uh, we're still continuing through our, our series called The Gospel in the Household of God. And um, we're going to get to the, the household of God phrase uh, in a couple of weeks. And you'll see what I'm, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, Paul describes the church as the household, as, as the household of God. He uses some other descriptor, descriptors too. But all throughout the New Testament, we see the church described as a family. A family, a household. And that's what, that's what that word household meant um, in, the, in the time of Paul the Apostle and the other apostles as they were um, spreading the good news that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for, but not just for the Jews. He was for everybody. And so this was good news for, for all people. And that's why uh, it's still good news. <laughs> It really is. It's still good news. That's why our vision as a church is to transform lives, families, and communities with the good news of Jesus. There are people all around us who need the good news. And we have that news in Christ, in the person and work of Jesus. So, here we are at, um, at uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to take us, um, and I'll explain a little bit later, I'm going to take us just a little bit, just one little phrase into the third chapter this morning as well. And, um, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that and see what, why it is that, that I'm including that in the message today. But um, would you just follow along with me in your Bibles um, as I read the word this morning? So here's what Paul had to say to Timothy and the church that he was serving. I desire then in every place, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness." with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to come before you once again asking you to speak through me, to give us understanding into really a very, in many ways, a very difficult passage of Scripture that we have to come to terms with. We have to come to, 
to understand what it is that you're saying to us, what this word means to us in our lives and in the, in the culture that we live in today. Um, God, help us to understand it, not just to understand, but then to have the power by the Holy Spirit to walk in it, to live according to it, to adjust our lives to your word. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Well, so, here's, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, um, I'm just going to uh, essentially, uh, where's my, uh, where's my bolt? I'm going to grab my bolt in here. Essentially, we're going to, we're going to walk through what I think are, are three main ideas that are in this, that are in this text today. We're going to kind of, we'll, we'll walk through, um, kind of verse by verse going through this passage as we usually do. And then when we get to some, some challenging bits, I'll try to explain a little bit of what I believe Paul is trying to get at here. All right? So, uh, let's remember, first of all, though, that um, as we're looking through this passage here, um, the, the title of the message, the gospel in worship, the gospel in worship, um, we talked about prayer last week, and, and that theme of prayer, the theme of, of prayer offered up for all people, in the presence of people, that, that Paul's desire was that we pray for all people, that we pray for gospel opportunities, we pray for our civil authorities, because we want an opportunity in public to share the good news of Jesus. We want an opportunity like we have right now to gather in this community center and talk about Jesus and share that with other people, uh, all who will come. And so he's continuing that same idea. So when he says, I desire then, he's really saying a therefore. That word then is often translated in other places as therefore. So in other words, so based on what I've just been saying, here's what I want. I want... Um, men in every place to offer prayers. So that theme of prayer, that theme of worship is continuing into this section. Um, Paul, when he says, I desire, um, a lot of times w- folks will, will hear that and go, well, that was his opinion. That was, you know, he, he really wanted that to happen. He, he wished that would happen for people. He desired it to happen, but the, 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 the way that the language is, is shaped here, I desire that they, well, h- how did I put it in my translation? Uh, I, I went through this, uh, I wish, I desire therefore the men to pray. That's kind of what he's saying. I desire the men to pray. And that combination of phrases, that combination of words that Paul used, is really a command. It's a command. It, it carries with it apostolic authority. Paul was an apostle sent by Jesus himself to deliver the message of the good news and to, and to encourage the church and direct the early church in the way that they should live and the way that they should act. And so really, let's not, let's not read this going, well, Paul's just kind of given his, given his opinion on some stuff. And that's his opinion, but I have a different opinion. Paul's word here is with the authority of Christ. The authority as an apostle. So he says, I want men in every place. That, that idea of, 
men in every place praying continues that theme of universality that we talked about last week, where um, Paul said, let prayers and all these, uh, these other types of prayers be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position. And he said, this is good, it's pleasing in sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. So he's, he's been talking about this universal offer of salvation. This, the fact that the gospel and the things of God are meant for all people in every place. And here he uses another similar phrase. He says, the men in every place. So every place there are men who worship me, every place where there's a body of Christ, there's a, a body of believers, like the, the river church here, every place that, that men are in the body, they need to pray. And he says, they need to pray with holy hands. The idea of holy hands goes back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament times where if you wanted to come and worship God, you had to go through certain ceremonies. You had to wash a certain way. The priests, they had the most, they had the most important job in the religious culture of the ancient Israelites. And the priests had to go through these elaborate washings, wash their entire body, have clean robes, do all of this stuff before they could come before God and worship Him. Worship Him in holiness. We sang these songs today about how holy God is. He is a holy God. He always does what is good. He always does what is right. He always does what is perfect. He is a holy God. And we cannot come to Him if we have sin. We cannot be in His presence without sin. So, so Paul is saying, look, you guys have got to deal with your sin. Men, you have to deal with your sin. You have to come before God in worship, in prayer, ceremonial, ceremonially clean, pure, ready to worship. He says, not in anger or quarreling. Not in anger or quarreling. How many times do we as men fall into a pattern of anger? How many times does anger or quarreling or uh, disputes, arguments, is what he's trying to get at there, to think about quarreling as, I'm argumentative. I'm anger. I'm angry. I want to argue my point. I want to be right. In a, in a few verses, uh, we'll look at, well, we'll look at this next week, we'll see that um, quarreling was something that Paul said, uh, repeated and said, look, you can't lead the church if you're a quarrelsome person. If you're always arguing, if you're always wanting to be right, if you're always wanting to debate the finer points of anything, that's not, that's not the character of a godly leader. So here he's saying, okay, so if you're going to be angry or quarreling, you need to get rid of that. You need to repent of those things, men. You need to be able to pray with pure hands, with holy hands, because people are going to see you in, in worship. People are going to look around you in the public places that we worship, and they're going to see, well, I hear him praying this, but what I see in his life is anger and quarreling and a, a characteristics that, that 
They don't seem consistent with the prayers that are being offered. Men publicly display the gospel by personal holiness. Men publicly display the gospel by personal holiness. See, remember that Paul's whole whole thing, the thing that he's been working on since he began this chapter, since he said, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. When he started that theme, he was talking about, and he's thinking in terms of the church being visible. He's thinking about the church being um, present in the public life. And so worship, not only in the context of our gathering here, is something that just that flows out into all aspects of our life. So we display the gospel by our personal holiness, men, that as we confess and we, we repent and we say, I have no holiness in myself, but Jesus has the holiness for me and I'm going to repent and I'm going to call on Jesus and I want Him to live through me and I want Him to change me little by little, day after day, sometimes in dramatic ways, sometimes in little ways. We live, we display the gospel. We, we show that, that God is God. He is a holy God and that Jesus is making us holy through our relationship with Him. Anger was a big deal for, for Paul. Anger was a big deal for people in the New Testament times. Jesus said this, and you have that in your, in your handout. He said, so if you, are, if you are coming to worship and you're offering your gift at the altar, that was, that was, that was code or, or a, uh, a description of how they worshipped at that time. And, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Just leave it. Stop. Don't go through with your plan for worship and make it right. He said, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Your brother, your, your, your fellow member of the family of God. You have something against your, your brother or your brother has something against you? Stop. Make it right, men. Make it right. Deal with it. He also said, and Paul also said this in Ephesians, he said, okay, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. You will be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Don't, don't be angry about injustice. Don't be angry about the way people are treating you. Don't be angry about the way people are treating other people, and then walk into sin. Don't start gossiping. Don't start slandering. Don't start fighting back. Don't start posting on Facebook. Don't start doing all those things that people do. Be angry, but do not sin. In fact, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the days go by where you're continually angry and you're not doing something about it. He says, and give no opportunity to the devil because that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do when we have anger that's unresolved, and we let the days go by, we're giving the devil an opportunity. An opportunity to do what? An opportunity to tear away our souls, to make us bitter, to make us not trust in God, and to make us trust in our own anger, to just to harbor bitterness, to uh, start gossiping, to start slandering, 
That's no good. Men, we publicly display the gospel by personal holiness. Then he starts in with the women. And ladies, I'm, I apologize that Paul has one verse for the men, and then he's got how many? Uh, six verses for the ladies. What's going on here? Seven verses for the ladies. Um, well, he's the apostle, so he has a right to do that. If I had the last name, the apostle, then I could probably do that too, but I don't. So I'm just going to tell you what he said, and we're going to let God's word speak for itself. But he does. He spends more time on this, and I'll share a little bit of why I think he probably does. But he says, likewise. Don't, don't, um, don't skip over that too quickly. Likewise is that word. So in the same way, or in the same line of thinking, let me talk about the women. In other words, number one, he's saying, what I'm saying to the women carries the same apostolic authority as what I'm saying to the men. Okay? What I'm saying about the women, what I'm saying that they should do, is the same inspired authority that I speak with when I speak to the men. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's also trying to say that also, this is the context of your worship, your public worship too. So, re- so think about that as you're reading that, that Paul has in mind when the church is gathering together, when the church is being the church in public, remember too that our worship flows outside of these doors and it carries into every other area of our lives. So that's important to remember. But what he says, he says, so women, adorn yourselves in respectable apparel. What does that mean? (laughs) It means don't dress in such a way as to bring shame or indecency or immodesty. Well, that's what he says. He says, dress with modesty and self-control. I mean, most of you, you ladies look beautiful this morning. And everyone comes and dresses modestly and I believe probably with self-control. But, but they were, Paul was having a, a real difficult time here with, the, with Timothy and with this church and with the culture that was going on at the time. Um, I, I meant to, I, I did, I found this really great description in, as I was reading and studying this week. I, I meant to bring that and I could just read you the whole thing. But I'll, let me just kind of summarize the kind of things that, that the church was dealing with. Um, they were dealing with a, a, a culture, especially in the Greco-Roman culture, where the women were saying, we don't have to listen to our men anymore. We can, we can make our own decisions. We can set the, uh, the, our own course for our lives. Um, and they were saying, well, <clears throat> we can dress however we want. If I want to dress like the, the, the women of ill repute dress, I can dress like that. I'll dress, I'll dress however I want. I'll act however I want. Um, there was a movement in the culture at the time that's not really not all, as I was reading that description, I thought, that's not all unlike the, the movement that we've had going on in our culture, in Western culture, over the last oh, 20, 30, 40 years. There was, a, um, there was a movement to liberate women. And so they dressed a certain way, they acted a certain way, and what happened was that was coming into the church, and then all of a sudden, the church was, was having to deal with, oh boy, what do we do with 
these women who are saying and doing certain things. And then people are looking outside and they're going, why do you let the women act like that? Why are they, uh, well, see it a little bit later, there were probably a lot of women stepping up saying, well, I know better. Besides that, um, Galatians um, says that there is no difference. So we're all equal, um, slaves and, and free and uh, Jews and Gentiles and men and women. So we can all have an equal share in everything. So there was, a, there was a lot of cultural drama going on there, especially with the women. And the end result was that it was bringing the church and the message of the gospel into a really cloudy area. The gospel wasn't coming through. Instead, it was all about genders battling each other. There wasn't the gospel being proclaimed Everyone was focusing on how the women were dressing. Everyone was focusing on how the women were acting. And so Paul is is trying to get across that, look, don't dress with the braided hair and the gold, which which reminds most people of the way the high-end prostitutes dressed. Don't dress in that way. Don't put on the, the fancy jewelry, what we have here described as pearls, of the costly attire, the fancy clothes, because our desire is not to bring attention to our outer appearance, but it's to bring attention to the inner character. The inner character. That's what Paul is trying to focus on. We saw that when we went through a study of 1 Peter, didn't we? When he said, Peter said, again, he said, likewise. Um, He was in a theme of, of thought through his letter too. And he said, wives, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Paul's idea is very similar to what Peter was saying. Look, it's you're supposed to dress with modesty and self-control and your lives should be characterized by what that little phrase at the end of verse 10, good works, the good things that you do. That's what he wanted women to focus on. Focusing on the other things that just distracts from the gospel. Distracts from the good works that, that we are to do. He says then, well, so you, I'm sure you're wanting to fill in this blank. Women then publicly display the gospel by inner character. Women publicly display the gospel by inner character. The way they dress, the way they live, it's not about the outer. It's not about the outer person. And some of you may be going, so that means I can't braid my hair? Or should I not wear jewelry anymore? That's not, I don't think that's what Paul was saying. He was saying that those things in that culture had a connotation that just completely distracted from the gospel. He's not saying you can't do, fix your hair. He, he's not saying you can't wear a nice clothing. <laughs> you can't wear jewelry. That's not what he's saying at all. But what he's saying is... <clears throat> If you're going to spend all your time with how you appear to people, then maybe you need to rethink it. Rethink that that the gospel is about what God does in transforming us on the inside. And if the way we dress is distracting people from our character, our godly character, and distracting people from the good news that Jesus wants, uh, that God wants us to share with other people, then we need to rethink it. 
We need to rethink it. That was what was going on at their time. And Paul said, you need to do something about this. Inner character. Women, you publicly display the gospel by your inner character. Well, he goes on, and he goes on to what's even probably more difficult, um, and a lot of disagreements over how we should interpret these passages. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Hmm. Interesting. What are we going to do with this? Okay. So I knew I was going to have to talk about this. I knew that. I knew that four weeks into the series, I was going to have to address this. Um, let me just share with you uh, two or three options that, that scholars take with this as they're looking at this. Um, it's, not, it's not choose door number one, door number two, door number three, but I just want to share with you what people have said about this. First of all, they said, Paul is a chauvinist, and that's just his opinion, and we should just ignore it. So there are some who've said that. They look at that and go, well, that's ridiculous. Um, he, he was uh, against women. That's not true. It can't possibly be true. I'll tell you why. Because Paul worked and served and ministered with women the, his entire ministry. Um, let me see. Uh, Lydia, a seller of purple cloth, he met with her and a bunch of women that she was leading down at, at the river uh, in Philippi, and they were, she was leading a Bible study, and that actually became the core group for a church plant in Philippi, if you want to use those terms. Um, they brought in, they, they ministered to other people, but there is one example. Um, he met with a, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And it's interesting that we uh, have their names listed Priscilla, then Aquila. We have the woman's name first, and then the man's name. And he served with them in Corinth. They originally were from Rome for a time. Then they were in Corinth. They traveled into Ephesus a little bit, and they traveled around here and there. But they spent a lot of time in the area of Corinth. And they were great ministers of the gospel. In fact, at one point in the book of Acts, it describes how they, Priscilla and Aquila, together ministered to another evangelist, another uh, missionary, and actually helped him explain to him more clearly the way of the gospel. He also in, writes letters, in all of his letters, he writes to men and to women. And he talks about the women being partners in the gospel. Paul wasn't a male chauvinist. Paul didn't have anything against women. Why would he write that? In Christ, there is neither male nor female. Why? Because we all have equal access to God in salvation through Christ. Through Christ. We can come to Him and we stand in Him in, in our um, what, what technical term, ontological, who we are, the, the, in our essence, before Christ, equals. Before Christ, we stand as equals. So, that's the, but the first option was, Paul was just a knucklehead, he didn't like women, and he was, he was um, discriminating against them. The other option is that 
Well, Paul said this then because there, because of the circumstances going on, because of the way the women were in that culture, and specifically, another offshoot of this is, specifically the way the women were in this church that Timothy was ministering in. In the city of Ephesus, in the churches that Timothy was working with and, and serving in, um, the women were usurping the men's authority, the women were leading the false teaching, the women were doing all of these things to disrupt the worship, and Paul said, look, in your church, I want to tell you guys, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it in that church. But then the scholars will say, well, yes, that was true for them, but it was particular to that context. And it didn't have, doesn't have application to other churches and other places where we are more godly, where we are more progressive, where we have progressed or evolved to a higher place of understanding about men and women, etc., etc. So that's another option that people take with this. That yes, that's exactly what Paul said, and yes, he meant that, but it's particular to that context, and it is not universally applicable. Especially not in a, a Western context where men and women are equal in the law, in, by the, based on the Constitution, and all other ways. We have equal rights to anything and everything, um, including positions in the church, including positions in the home, etc., etc., etc. I'll tell you why I don't think that's true. Because in 1 Timothy, Paul calls out men who are causing problems in the church, but he doesn't call out the women. He calls out women in, in Philippians. Remember in Philippians 4? He says, I... Uh, how does he say it? He says, these, these two women... I'll just paraphrase. He says, these two women... Um, Sintiki or Sintuki and what was, her, what was the other name? Uh, Euodia. Agree in the Lord. He calls these women out. You, these two women are causing conflicts. They're at each other's throat. He calls them out publicly in a letter. And he says, deal with this. You guys need to deal with this. Get right. Agree in the Lord. And, and he also talks to another guy. He says, hey, help them with this. Help them, along with the rest of the church that's there, the rest of my partners in the gospel, work together to solve this conflict. And he calls them out by name. So if Paul was addressing something in Ephesus, where he's writing to Timothy, in which there were women stepping up and taking control over the, over the church, and usurping authority, and doing, all, doing the like, which may or may not have been happening, I have a, there's a good chance that he probably would have called them out directly. And he would have been pretty specific about it. Because Paul's not, he's not afraid to get specific. He's not afraid to say, hey, you guys need to get this right. You guys need to take care of this. Here's, here's another reason why I don't think it's just limited to the context in Ephesus. Because Paul has been talking about universals. He's been talking about universals the whole time. He's been talking about how we need to pray for all people. That God's salvation message is for all people. He's talking about men in every place. In every place. Not just 
in, a, in, a, in the context that Timothy was in. And remember he said, likewise. So he's carrying over that theme of, look, these are universal ideas. And the last reason I don't think that, he, that this is limited just to the cultural context is what he says next. What he says next. He goes to the story. He goes to the story of God. How many times do we, in our missional communities, we'll be talking about something and somebody will ask a question and my next question is, I'll say, well, where is that in the story? Or, well, let's go back to the story. What does the story tell us? And so what Paul does here is he goes, well, here's, here's how you guys need to, to behave. Here's how the women need to be. Let me go back to the story and show you why this is the case. So he goes back to the story of the creation account. He goes back to the story in Genesis. And he said, Adam was formed first. Then Eve was formed. Adam was the first one to, to be formed. We see that in Genesis 2. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed life into, them, into him. And he gave the man, Adam, a mission to take care of the, of the garden. To work the garden. So to work, to, to, to have that mandate as the first man meant that he was responsible for what goes on in the garden. He was responsible over creation. God set the man up first to take the lead. To take the lead. And then he formed Eve. And he formed Eve out of the rib. Remember the story. At the end of Genesis 2, he takes a rib out of Adam while he's in a deep sleep. We have the first surgery in Genesis chapter 2. We have the first anesthesiology in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam's in a deep sleep. The rib comes out. And, and God fashions a woman out of the rib. A woman who will be his helper, who will be his counterpart, who will, um, will complement them. Like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together. The man and the woman fit together, complementing each other with different, different um, functions, different um, characteristics, different dynamics, uh, different uh, inner desires and passions. They fit together. They're meant to be together. And it's a beautiful thing. The Genesis account is a beautiful thing. It's part of our gospel. And then he says, though, 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, on the face of it, we go, well, that's not true. Adam was deceived too, wasn't he? I mean, he, believed, he, he took the fruit from Eve. And, and the Bible says that he was with the woman. We have a conversation in Genesis 3 between Eve and the serpent. And Eve finally listens to the serpent, is deceived by the serpent, takes the fruit, eats it, and the Bible says he gave, she gave it to her husband who was with her. Adam was right there. But, who was the first one to, deceive, to be deceived? Who was the first one to take the fruit? Well, Paul's trying to point out, not here that, that Adam didn't sin, it, that it was all Eve's fault. He's not trying to put all the blame on the woman, 
But what he's trying to do is say that it was Adam who was created first, but it was the woman who sinned first, who was deceived first. So what does that mean? Well, you could... <laughs> what does that mean? I think what it means for us is that God created Adam, created the man to take the lead. And he gave him that functional role to be the leader in his family and that carries over into the church. And he gave Adam that role because Adam, the man, needs to protect the woman. The, 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 the man needs to be the one to keep the woman. Just as he was commanded in the garden to work the ground to keep it, to protect it, to care for it. And what happened was that we see that when Eve stepped forward and said, I'm not going to talk it over with my husband, I'm going to make this decision on my own, what happens is deception and sin and conflict. Would Adam have said no to the serpent if Eve had gone to him and said, Adam, what do you think? Let's talk about this. Maybe, maybe not. We don't have that. We don't, that's, because that's not part of the story. All we have is the story that God has given us. And Paul draws on that to talk about the functional roles of the man and the woman, specifically here in the church. So, a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness means that, that she is a, a part of the dynamic of the church. That she's supposed to be there learning just the same as any other person has, has equal access to the good news of Jesus. Equal access to learn from Scripture. To grow in her knowledge of Christ. With all submissiveness, he's just drawing on the, the themes of wives submit to your husband that are all throughout the New Testament. This isn't something new. He's not making this up as he goes here. He's already written in many, many other places about wives submit to your husbands. And then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Most, most um, scholars, um, some, some will try to divide those two and say, well, a woman's not supposed to teach at all. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's not saying women aren't supposed to teach or can't teach. But the teaching and having exercise or exercising authority over a man, it means, for, for Paul in this context, he's saying that means the principle is they shouldn't have that authority over men in the church. They need to be the ones who are listening. Need, they need to not disturb the peace of the church and allow the men to have the functional role that God has given them as leaders in the church. More on that next week as we get into the next passage, the next chapter. So really, what all of this comes down to is that men and women both together publicly display the gospel through functional roles. Functional roles. And here's what it's supposed to look like. Ephesians 5, just, just some snippets of, of this from Ephesians 5. And please go back to that and read it more in detail. But what he says is, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, the lead, the leader of the wife and his family, even as Christ is the head, the leader of the church. Christ is the leader. Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. Christ is the pastor of our church. He's the one who leads. He's the one who leads. He's the head of the church, his body. He is the Savior. And he's say, saying that, women, you need to submit to your husbands just as Christ is the head of the church and the church submits to Christ. That's what he says then. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, um, there's a lot more to talk about this. There's a lot more to talk. Well, what about a husband who's a jerk? What about a husband who's an abuser? What, if the, what about a husband who is doing something illegal? God doesn't ever, ever, ever say, women, stay in abuse. Women, just take it. Just submit. There is a way that the gospel shines through in a husband and wife relationship, in a family as it does in the life of a church. When the men and women are in their functional roles within the church as well. It's something that displays the gospel. It displays how good Jesus is to his church. When husbands, what does he say? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificed for her. That's what Christ did for the church. He died for the church. He loved it. He led it. But he died for the church. And then he later on, Paul in that passage in Ephesians says, this mystery is profound. In other words, okay, so you have questions now about it? You should have questions. You should have questions about this. It's profound. It's deep. It's really deep. What is it all about? It's a mystery that God is trying to reveal to us. And he says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The way husbands and wives love each other and the way our churches are ordered where men and women are publicly displaying the gospel through functional roles, the way that happens, it displays the goodness of God in the gospel. It displays how Jesus lovingly, servingly, humbly leads His church. And it's, that's how the men are supposed to humbly serve and lead in the church. And the women are there to support and to be just like God, just like God told us in Genesis, where, where Adam was looking around, there's nobody here for me. God said, I'll make you a woman who is suitable for you, who is compatible with you, who is a helper for you, because you guys need to walk in unity this is not saying anything. This passage that Paul is saying here is not saying anything about the inherent value in men and women being different. He's not saying anything about value being different. That's what the, the rest of the world would like to say. It would like to us to believe that just because things have different roles, that they have different functions, things or people, that they have a difference in value. That's not true at all. And that's not what Paul is saying. 
He, this last phrase, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I will say it this way. Because I could preach an entire message just on that. We could unpack about all the different views on that. What he's trying to allude to is he's trying to allude to the role of the woman. The role of the woman, she should not shy away from childbearing. The women of, of Paul's time um, were, were, were essentially declining to have children. And believe it or not, if you think that abortion on demand is a huge issue in our culture today, it was a huge issue in Paul's time as well. I don't want to have ch- children because I don't want to f- fall into that functional role. I don't want to have that traditional role, so I'm going to not have children ever, or if for some reason I get pregnant because I'm living the way I want to live, I'll abort the baby. And that's what was happening in Paul's time, just as in, tragically, it's happening today. So Paul alludes to the idea that childbearing rearing children, being a mother, was what, what, was what Eve was created for. Adam called the woman Eve, which means the mother of all the living. The mother of the living. Because that was, that was going to be her functional role in family and in society and in the church. So he alludes to that saying, just referring to her role and saying, that salvation, if they continue in faith and love and holiness, with self-control, if these characteristics, which come only from Jesus being in a person's life, a woman who professes godliness, as he said in verse 10, will have these characteristics, faith and love and holiness, not just for the men now, but we see it's for the women as well, and self-control. These characteristics that come out of a godly character. A woman who, whose character is defined and created by the work of Christ in her. The gospel is on display in our relationships. What kind of gospel is it? The gospel is displayed in how our church functions. The roles that we give men and women within the church. The gospel is on display. So how should we live? How should we live? Let me, um, let me pray, and then we'll respond to this word. Father, thank you for this message that you have for us today. Lord, I, um, I confess it's a difficult message, and it probably brought up more questions than were answered this morning. Lord, I pray that you will not don't let us give up on you and your word. That we let us um, continue to pursue it, to continue to seek answers, um, practically continue to to seek you and to seek wisdom from you. God, may your Holy Spirit guide us as we fulfill our functional roles within the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, um, let's stand. We're going to hear a, a song. We'll have a time of response again. Um, as we do, I want to just 
Um, I want to draw your attention to the, uh, the application section on your handout. Um, you can look at it later or follow along with me, but uh, let's, let's think about what it, how should we respond to this? Men specifically, you know, what anger do you need to repent of? Um, I've needed to do a lot of repenting of anger over the years. And with my wife, and with my children. And one of the things that I've asked God to help me in is to develop patience and compassion in, treat, in the way I treat the people closest to me. The way I treat my wife, the way I treat my daughters. Man, do you need to repent of something like that? What arguments need to be resolved? You know, we have discipling groups. Um, maybe some of you are not in a discipling group yet. But I think most of you are. We have those groups where men get together and women get together so we can talk about these things. And we can share them with each other. And we can work out a plan for repentance and a plan for us to be transformed by the good news of Jesus. That's what God wants us to do. He wants to heal our marriages, heal our relationships. He's given us a way to do that. He's given us direction. Men, what arguments do you need to resolve? What anger do you need to repent of? Women, what character quality do you need to develop? Modesty or self-control or good works? Boy, it's hard to teach our, uh, our daughters modesty when the entire culture is saying, you need to look like this in order to be loved. You need to look like this in order to be beautiful. You need to look like this in order to have value. The gospel comes and says, that's not true at all. Modesty is of great value. Uh, Self-control is of great value. Good works are of great value. Women, what character do we need to develop and help to develop in, in the young ladies that are in our midst too? Share that with your disciple and group. Develop a character plan. How are you functioning in the church? How have you functioned in the church? Men, what areas of pride do you need to repent of? Men or women, what areas of pride do you need to repent of? Are we grasping for something? Are we pursuing something that we shouldn't pursue? Or are we not pursuing an area of ministry, especially as men, that we should be pursuing? We'll talk more about that next week. But as the music plays... Um, I want to give us an opportunity to, to, re- to respond. Um, if it's a new song, just listen. Pray. Come forward. You can come forward and kneel at, at some of the chairs up front and pray. If you need to make a decision about anything, well, I invite you to come forward.